Investors Chronicle. Welcome to the IC Companies and Markets podcast. I'm Mark Robinson. I'm sitting in for Dan Jones, who's taking a well-deserved break at the moment. And I'm joined this week by my colleagues, uh, Julian Hoffman, Gemma Slingo, and Jennifer Johnson. It's been a fairly sort of busy week, really, at least in terms of uh, news on the market. This week, we're going to be looking at, well, we're going to be taking a, a trip down memory lane at least for some of us at any rate, because we'll be looking at some uh, investor options to gain exposure uh, to the Lloyds market, uh, courtesy of a, a new article that's been written by Julian. We're also going to be taking uh, another look at some of the companies featured, uh, this time in the second instalment of our AIM 100 review. Somewhat disparate at that, uh, one of the companies engaged in professional translation services and the other two in human and animal health. Uh, there's been some uh, Q3 updates from WPP and Meta platforms. So we're, we're gonna be musing on that a little later, uh, given the likely or the possible future trajectory of uh, advertising budgets. So we can look at that. Otherwise there's been no, as I mentioned, no shortage of trading updates and that's uh, ahead of the, the short but intense reporting season for the 30 September year ends and half years. ASOS actually failed to report. Uh, they were due to publish their their audited figures on Wednesday, and that obviously hasn't played very well with the market, uh, feeding into existing uh, anxieties. There's been one of the more uh, heavily shorted stocks in uh, London of late, which seems somewhat at odds with the fact that it was once upon a time it was the the poster child for online or or fast fashion. The general feeling is that it may have failed to capitalize on trends that were established during lockdowns and its turnaround plans are just simply taking too long. To be fair to ASOS, it's you know it's facing the same difficulties, the same headwinds that the industry is as a whole. It's faced, you know, it's faced with increased competition as well, shrinking discretionary incomes. And they've also blamed the weather, although I always tend to think that's a little bit uh, spurious. At any rate, Fraser's group, they've been adding to its stake in the company and it's gonna fuel speculation that change may, may be at hand. We also saw an update from uh, Unilever uh, today actually, uh, which didn't find favor with the market. Uh, the consumer goods giant is definitely pulling in its belt, judging by the report. And it's ruled out any large scale M&A activity in the future. It outlined a strategy which, amongst other things, includes a, a management overhaul. And perhaps the most interesting feature, though, is that it uh, said that it was increasing focus on its big brands that account for the, the lion's share of the turnover. I think it's about 30 brands that account for 70% uh, of uh, revenues. And when, when I first read this, I thought this could be a vestige of the, the pandemic when uh, Unilever and, and some global uh, peers uh, most notably uh, Procter & Gamble, I think. They paired back a number of product lines in response to the existing supply chain disruption. 
that had the effect of actually supporting gross margins to a certain degree during that period. And also these companies now, they're faced to a, a larger extent, well, they, they depend to a larger extent really on trusted brand names and, and, and brand loyalty. It's one of the, the moats associated with these types of companies. But they're now facing increased uh, pressure from uh, generic products in the market. Lastly today, there was a, there was a profit sporting from standard chart that shares fell by about 10% on the market. That's a big warning for a, a company of that size. Uh, and it contributed to the weakness in the benchmark FTSE 100 index, of course. It, the company's been hit by problems in the Chinese real estate market. It's not on its own there. And, you know, the, the talk is now that it's going to become increasingly vulnerable to a takeover again from uh, this time from uh, Abu Dhabi, one imagines. Julian, you know, back in September when you, you were detailing Ashmore's year figures i think you pointed to the fact that the emerging market sector had been banking really on a material weaker us dollar that would come to the rescue but that hasn't quite panned out no it hasn't the dollar's going the other direction again uh, as it always does when there's a crisis i mean the, the figures themselves weren't that bad in 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 the sense that they seemed able to capitalize on their on their net interest margin and the thing that everyone's pointed to is the fact that their chinese real estate write downs are picking up yeah, and um, it's the same situation as with HSBC. You know, they, they've all been uh, backing uh, commercial real estate in China, and that market is going south very rapidly. In fact, there was um, talk today, wasn't there, that uh, the, um, the the main the biggest uh, bond bankruptcy in China is again around the, the corner uh, when one of their developers has missed another coupon payment. So it's it's a very volatile situation I mean, it's, it's almost deprecating to call them emerging markets but you know uh, new markets are not proving to be a, a shelter for investors at the moment everybody looks to the dollar as soon as there's a problem yeah i mean and, and given the uh, deteriorating sort of global security situation as well that's a, attracting a dollar interest or safe haven interest as well so that's all, you know given the the negative correlation with emerging market growth that's obviously uh a bit of a worry too. Okay, Julian is still with us, of course, and and this week he's written a really interesting uh, news analysis piece on Lloyd's markets. And uh, for me, anyway, it was a uh, it was quite a nostalgic view of the world as well because it took me back to the days of uh, yeah, Lon Rove, Tiny Roland, Bob yeah. Maxwell, yeah, horse brasses in pubs, exactly, um, BCCI. Um, <laughs> yeah, we we did our favourite corporate scandals of the 80s discussion yesterday didn't we really yeah um so what why what i mean this is associated really with the lloyd's market which is what we we're talking about and um the first thing anyone says who has any length of memory on this is the lloyd's name scandal where yeah. um, you know lots of individual investors found themselves often quite inadvertently um being signed up as lloyd's names by you know incompetent or unscrupulous financial advisors and it was really in those days, it was just as easy as, you know, signing a form and pledging your house. The reason why this has come up again is because investors seem to be looking again at the Lloyd's market for returns because uh, insurance rates have been going up for the last 22 quarters. Um, it's on a, it's, it's almost a, a boom time, you could all, you could say, because, uh, you know, you, you notice it in your car insurance. Every, anything you buy that has insurance at the moment is is far more expensive than this time last year, and uh, those hardening rates are encouraging uh, investors to look again at the Lloyd's market as a source of regular returns. 
Um, the main problem has always been access. So uh, if you want to invest in the Lloyds market, you need to have a certain amount of capital, which is quite high. The threshold is something like 350,000. You have to be able to invest and it can't be any more than 10% of your total capital. So there's not a lot of people in the grand scheme of things who have that kind of money available. Uh, and you also have to pass this, the client suitability tests before you start investing in syndicates. So it's you know, there's, there's a lot of bureaucracy involved in getting into the in, into Lloyd's. You said there's a there's a potential IPO in the offing. Well, this is the, this is where this is where it becomes interesting. So, um, as a proxy, people have tended to buy Beasley, which is a well-listed reinsurer, as a sort of proxy for investing in Lloyd's. But uh, a, a potential IPO that's coming up. Uh, in November is uh, being launched by a company called FinSec, which is a special purpose acquisition vehicle, uh, which put together by a couple of ex-insurance executives. And they've been talking since the summer about getting a fund off the ground that will uh, invest in the Lloyds syndicates on behalf of investors. Um, and it seems like this is this development is now closer. They've They've done a reverse takeover into uh, something called London Innovation Underwriters, which is a specialist you know, underwriting type company. Um, and together, they, they're looking to raise 500, uh, 500 million to invest in a book of syndicates. Um, and they're marketing this uh, quite heavily towards uh, retail investors. And, and for reasons which, you know, make kind of sense, you know, you, you know Lloyd's market uh, returns are about you know, averaging 10% annually at the moment, where I have done for a long time. Unless you get a massive string of disasters, which is what happened uh, in 87 to 89. You had the two hurricanes, you had the Exxon Valdez, you had the Piper Alpha rig blowing up. Um, you, 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 you know, you can make money ahead of, uh, you know, the head of claims. I mean, that's that's how it works. Um, and and that, uh, that return perennially has been... Uh, about 10%. So, they, yeah, they're looking at ordinary investors to access the market, you know, at the same time as overcoming the barriers that there are to, to accessing Lloyd's. So it's it's a, it's quite an interesting possible proposition. It's just a question of, A, whether the IPO gets definitively off the market next month and uh, what, uh, what reception it's going to get from investors, I think, is the other one. Because there is a lot of folk memory around, around the Lloyd's market. Yeah, it's bound to be closely followed as well. I remember going back to the, the Lloyd's name scandal as well. The the government was eventually, uh, well, forced or decided to intervene, which created uh, a great deal of controversy at the time. Uh, but yeah, this is what this is one the market will be looking at very closely. I would imagine. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's been totally reformed. They they, had to, they actually had to pass an act of parliament to reform it. Oh, okay. There um, we are. So it's uh, it's on it's on less. You know, it wasn't very much a gentleman's agreement type place, and um, and now it's all sort of been more formalised, I think. And certainly, the the amount of capital buffer and safety ratios that you need in order to, to trade there is, uh, has increased massively. So, you know, it, it's more it's a more regulated market than it ever was. Okay, uh, presumably that that impacts uh, returns though. But as you say, if they've been averaging ten uh, percent per annum over the long term, that that's going to attract investor in interest. I do recall that uh, Henry Cooper was one of the, the names that was caught up in that uh, original scandal, but... Uh, well, you mean uh, the boxer? Yes, yes. Uh, uh, okay, well, there, lots of people were. I mean, um, I mean I, I, they won't thank me for saying this, and I hope they're not subscribers, but my old neighbours got 
<laughs> got caught up in it and we ended up buying their field at a very knockdown price <laughs> oh, <that's... laughs> uh one can only hope that uh i'm sure that they're in a far better situation now yeah than in the autumn 1989 indeed <laughs> uh yeah that was then and this is now we're going to be moving on uh great discussion with uh, gemma slingo on uh rws uh it's a, 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 a translation and records management company, I would guess you'd say. So they, they, the shares dropped quite dramatically uh, on the day uh, prior to this broadcast. Uh, the company cited reduced activity in uh, several of its markets. And it, and it uh, said that it's going to be re uh, missing revenue expectations. Gemma, you you know this uh, company backwards, actually. So, I mean, what what was your your take on the uh, on yesterday's announcement? Um, I think we'd say it wasn't particularly surprising. So, it might be useful just to cycle back to look at what RWS actually does because it's yeah. one of the biggest names in the AIM one hundred, but not that many people have heard of it really. So, it has various divisions, but basically everything's focused around translation, as you said. So, a lot of it. Its revenue comes from technical translation, so that's work for things like pharmaceutical companies, law firms, where the translation has to be extremely accurate in order to convey the exact message. Um, and patent translations is another big area of, of sales for them. So we'd seen it do pretty okay for a long time, RWS, but over the last couple of years, things have really gone downhill, and it's developed this habit of disappointing investors. So Last year, it came out on its capital markets day saying profits would be at the lower end of expectations. It did the same thing this year. And then, as you mentioned, just a few days ago, it published a trading update saying organic revenue was down and it was missing its sales targets. So I think investors by now are, are pretty used to some nasty shocks from the company. But that that didn't stop shares going down by about a, a fifth on the day. Yeah, earlier this year as well, I, th I think uh, uh, the, the company said itself that it had introduced an, a number of uh, cost-saving initiatives that would um, lead to savings of about 10 million for the remainder of this year and uh, 25 million into next year as well. But saying at the same time, I think they announced a, a fairly hefty share buyback. Given the nature of the company's activities, I, I wonder, you know, is it really that easy for them to pay back costs? Because they, as a proportion of revenues, their VIX costs must be fairly high compared to a lot of companies. I think you're right. Yeah, there is this question of whether they will just strip things back so much because of the profit pressures that actually the, the business as a whole will be diminished. Um, and I think the real worry for investors has been on the demand side of things, really, because in its latest trading update, it cited sort of ongoing challenges, reduced activity in some markets, and it always has an excuse for the for why the activity is low, but it doesn't really seem to have any answers on how to re-energize it. So on the one hand, as you say, you've got these these cost pressures and this need to strip back expenses, but also there are these big questions about whether demand is sustainable. And whether it will bounce back as as management keeps promising. Yeah, I guess when you look at it, if you've had a, a fall away in uh, global M and A activity, which we've seen, if we've uh, had a fall away in uh, activity within the the legal fraternity, which we've seen as well, uh, you, you're bound to have a, a, an overall reduction in demand for this type of work. So, I mean, there must be a correlation to general demand, at least within the broader advisory complex. 
but there we are, one to keep an eye on there as well. If we can move on now to another uh, update, uh, another unfavorable update as well with the WPP. And uh, Gemma, you, you've had a look at this one as well. And it, it falls into line with some comments that you made on a, a recently published feature called the, the Battle for Human Attention. Uh, what were WPP saying and what was the market reaction? Yeah, so WPP, obviously a much bigger name, the, the big advertising agency. Um, and it's not having a, a very easy time, as you might expect. So this morning, um, it trimmed its profit forecasts and its revenue outlook because of this pressure on ad spend. Um, and it flagged in particular North America and China as being being big issues. Um, actually, the market reaction wasn't too extreme because I think just generally the sector has been under so much pressure. Investors have been... Um, have been worried for quite a while. So just having a look, shares are actually only down by 2% currently. So I think this sort of dread was probably ingrained in its share price. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, there's, a, there's a broader story there as well, because I think when you find whenever advertisers in trouble, it, it's, never a, it's never a good sign for the economy, uh, probably even more so now given the type of advertising they're engaged in. So it's seen as a, as a, a decent bellwether for the, the economy as a whole, because obviously companies will usually increase spending on ads when they're we're feeling positive and they'll scale back during more challenging periods as well. Uh, and given the breadth of uh, WPP's operations, I mean, that's, uh, that's uh, possibly an even bigger problem there. It did say that it was having a, uh, an investor day in January to outline its plans to, to drive growth. I mean, have you got any thoughts on how it might hope to achieve that in an unfavorable market? So it seems to have a few different ideas. So one of the things it keeps mentioning is this, its attempts to streamline the company, simplify it to make, I think, because at the moment it's just got so many different moving parts, it's quite hard um, I suppose, as an investor to figure out what's going on, but also to run it internally. Um, but another big issue with WPP that investors have been talking about for a while is whether it's got a strong enough digital direction. So lots of its big peers were buying up um, digital advertising companies to sort of bolster that side of the business, whereas WPP is often associated with more traditional big ad campaigns and there is this question of whether it can compete effectively in today's market so I imagine people will be keeping quite a close eye on that as well. No doubt at all um, actually other people might be keeping a, a closer eye on it too because that has been sort of linked with takeover speculation regarding uh, its relationship with uh, Blackstone and a company Silver Lake as well so that that's another name there that could be in play too I mean I guess that's a a feature of the market at the moment. We're, we're seeing quite a few uh, profit shortfalls and increased distressed debt. The successive interest rate rises are actually seem to be having a profound effect in the economy now, and that could lead to consolidation throughout a number of sectors. Lastly today, we're going to have a look at a couple of companies that were also included in our latest AIM 100 uh, rundown as well. Speaking to uh, Jennifer Johnson about these. Uh, Jennifer, there's a couple of companies that you'd like to highlight, pretty different healthcare companies in different ways. And uh, it seems that we're pretty bullish on both of them. Uh, can, you, can you explain why that is? Yeah, and I think uh, the reason I wanted to highlight both of these as well is, as you mentioned, the kind of economic picture is darkening. And so healthcare, be it, pet healthcare or human healthcare um, tends to be 
very defensive in these sorts of, of times. Um, so the companies I wanted to talk about are in the top five of our AIM 100 listing. And the first is Hutchmed, which is a Hong Kong headquartered pharma group that is developing mostly oncology drugs. And I also then want to talk about the, the veterinary chain CVS, which has been having a little bit of a difficult time at the moment. Um, so I'd argue that the bull case for both of these is, is slightly speculative. But as you said, for different reasons, I'll go into the bear cases in a minute, but start with the positives. Hutchmed is, um, is really unique in terms of life sciences firms listed in London, in that the majority of its sales are in mainland China. Um, it has some 13 cancer drug candidates at various stages of development at the moment. Three of these are already available, meaning they've been green-lighted by regulators and they're being used to treat patients. Um, so it's it's quite impressive, really, that the company has gotten as far as it has. Oncology's a field dominated by huge blue-chip companies like AstraZeneca, Lots of smaller groups may think they've developed a, a promising new treatment but fail to get it past regulators and onto the market. Uh, and Hutchmed is now partnering with companies outside of mainland China to bring its drugs to new populations. For instance, it has a, a partnership uh, with the Japanese pharma company Takeda uh, to bring one of its drugs to patients there. So even without an international expansion, it's an interesting story because we know rates of cancer go up as people live longer and China now has one of the fastest growing ageing populations in the world. As countries get richer, rates of certain cancers linked to um, lifestyle factors also increase. So it's kind of a, a compelling market opportunity, really. And then CVS is, wor is worth looking at because, as I, I kind of said earlier, pet care is known to be this really resilient sector. People will prioritise spending on the health of their pets when times are tough. Uh, and the company released full-year results in September, which we um, discussed on the podcast at the time about a month ago. Um, and revenue was up 10%. Pre-tax profit was up 50%, which, uh, you know, are all good signs, but it's it's not as, as rosy as it might seem. I mean, it, it did get a boost as well uh, during the days of the pan pandemic and shortly afterwards. Whether that's been sustained, I don't know. Um. No, it has not been sustained for, um, obviously, everyone got a, a pet in the pandemic, which uh, was helpful to um, not just CVS, but also um, Pets at Home, which is the other kind of listed veterinary uh, services group. Um, but we've had this issue with the, the CMA, um, which is launching a review into the veterinary sector. It's not really known what's going to happen. It's really they're assessing whether... Uh, vets provide good value for money and a good service for pet owners uh, and that's in progress at the moment but shares have really um shares of all um or both veterinary companies have, have fallen cvs is down actually even further than when we first discussed this so it's down 13 percent in the last month and that's all really on this kind of bearish feeling uh, around what's going to happen with with the CMA. But again, I would kind of caution investors not to panic as yet, because one, there's no evidence that there's going to be a huge profit impact, even if the CMA does uh, impose some kind of new regulations on the sector. Um, and yeah, it's it's a wait and see thing, but also an opportunity potentially because uh, shares are very, um, very deflated at the moment. So if those long term investment rationale is in place for both companies, which it seems to be, uh, even given sort of near-term challenges as well. Mm. Do, you, do you see any possibility that uh, they could be subject to uh, buyout provisions? 
So it's difficult to speculate and there have not been any buyout rumours for either company of late, but it is worth musing on for a, a second, I think, particularly as uh, the company that was at the top of the AIM 100 last year, Abcam, has well delisted from London is still listed in New York and is currently being um, bought out or at least uh, there's a a potential buyout process uh, that's been initiated also worth noting with CVS almost all of the country's veterinary chains are owned by private equity groups uh, and CVS is hovering obviously around this really low valuation at the moment Decra Pharmaceuticals, the veterinary drug maker, is currently being taken private by um, the private equity group EQT. So there's clear interest in this market. On the flip side, the private equity groups that sort of specialise in the vet services sector may want to see how things shake out with the CMA. With HutchMed, I would say it looks unlikely as they're going down this partnerships route. Smaller biotechs, so other aim-listed biotechs with one or two assets uh, are kind of buyout targets uh, from bigger pharmaceutical companies. For instance, we've recently seen Novo Nordisk and Eli Lilly buying out a lot of smaller drug makers with obesity drug candidates, not any off of the London market, but, um, you know, kind of throughout the world. Good run for uh, Eli Lilly of late. It has been an incredibly good run for Eli Lilly of late. Um and yeah, they clearly have the firepower to do this this kind of um, buying out within the um, within especially um, obesity drugs. Um, but we're, for other the other kind of model, um, as opposed to straight M and A in pharma, is this partnerships uh, thing where a bigger company like Japan's Takeda, who I mentioned earlier, pays the smaller company, i.e. Hutchmed, to sell one of their drugs in a given geography. So they kind of bear the brunt of the marketing and the regulatory costs. Smaller companies often don't have the bandwidth to do this. And this seems to be working quite well for Hutchmed so far. I think they're placing a lot of um, kind of future growth hopes on partnerships. So, yes, it looks like that's the sort of future for that company. And the future for CVS is uh, is unknown. But again, the valuation is compelling. Well, there we have it. There we have it. I mean, one one takeaway, I guess, from uh, this week's podcast is anyway, is that we're, we are actually could be on the verge of seeing an increase in M&A activity, which ironically would be pretty good news for RWS, who we covered a little bit earlier on. But I I think that's about it this week. So I'd just like to say thanks to uh, Julian, Gemma and Jennifer for their comments and uh, say goodbye to everyone out there. Hopefully it's a profitable week for everyone and we'll speak to you again in a week's time. 